This is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice podcast, and I'm here with Doug Gustafson, the founder of Homes Now, Not Later, and the current operating person who's pretty much in charge of its development. What is it, Doug, and who are you? Talk to us about who you are and what you've been doing and why you care about what you're doing. Okay, so uh, I'm chairman of Homes Now, Not Later. Homes Now um, currently manages two tiny home villages in Bellingham, Washington, um, uh, for people who are homeless. And we we are um, an all-volunteer organization, uh, no paid staff. Um, and our um, villages are managed by the people themselves who are homeless, who live there um, while they seek out uh, permanent housing. Um, and uh, I, you know, we, we started it um, Homes Now in around 2017. Um, we got our first village in 2019, uh, second village in 2020. Um, and uh, we, we, we are, we currently have about a, 58% rehousing rate. So that means that 58% of people that come through and move out um, find housing, opening a spot for somebody else. Uh, and uh, it's been a it's been a, a wild few years. You know, a lot of stuff has happened and um, we've managed to weather the storm and um, we we don't take um we, we don't take uh, government money and we we uh, we are on government land though, um, and that that that's we are that's how we're able to actually have a spot to to have our villages. The city is allowing us to use their land. So um, what you're what you're saying is that you don't take money to operate staff, it, it, but it, you yeah, take the support by the the city of Bellingham that's helping you stay it, on property that's safe and secure, more or less, as long as you work with all their rules. It, it, yes, and, and so we we don't take government money for operations. Where we do ride the wave a little bit is um, the city does provide for one of our villages. The city does provide the porta potties and the um, the garbage and the uh, electric, um, and so the infrastructure and stuff like that. The city uh, helped with that. Um, and the and other then, question is, who carries the insurance on it? We do. You do the we we, we pay yeah we we pay the insurance every year for both villages yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, and uh, the city is very particular about what about the amount of money being really high and the the certain things could being covered. Uh, I, I I it's not that expensive though. I believe it's about three thousand dollars a year per I think per village. But our insurance agent actually um, pays for one of the villages as a donation. Each oh, year. that's so. So we only pay about half of what we'd have to. Well, that's an interesting concept that in another conference call we can talk about the the idea mm. because what you're doing by taking all these homeless people off the streets and giving them a leg up and a leg out of poverty is you're actually reducing massive liabilities on the city's part. Yeah, I I think so, and the the. Uh, and again, it's the people living there that are making this work, right? Because like I, I know that I play a significant role, but uh, being the chairman and everything, but but like if it was just me, it would have failed, right? And so the the there's a lot of good people that live there that are homeless. They are homeless and they need a place to live, and they have skills, they have talents, they they they're they're good with people. They can ha they can um, keep the village running smoothly, right? And so um, that you know that. I, we're trying to prove that these are just people without homes. They're just they're just like you. There's nothing. There's nothing um, different about them other than they don't have a place to live or their income is really low or whatever. And um, sometimes I feel like uh, 
there's too much microanalysis of of the person of why they're homeless and that you know they must have made serious mistakes or they must be a drug addict or they must um have mental illness in order to become homeless but no it's like it could happen to anybody you know everybody is just one paycheck away from it happening to them too and until they've been there they don't really understand that well it's interesting because what you're talking about is you know some people call it othering in certain conversations other people calling it you know accusing and projections and all these things but what you're what you're saying is what i've actually figured out by doing dozens of these interviews over the last while is that we're all just human beings right. and so when we're talking about economics and how the tiny home village works as an economic model Mm. that's one conversation. Are you prepared to move into another conversation to talk about how our lives change? Because you came in to the conversation mm. <laughs> before we got hit with all of the civic trauma, these collisions in the community, mm. with yeah. the COVID crisis, with shutdowns, with people being locked into their homes, with people being locked out of businesses. What happened to you and your organization over the past three to four years as you've been doing all this? Mm -hmm. Well, there was a couple of things. Um, what I, I, I don't want to say it's all been bad either because there's right. there's been good things that have happened because of the challenges too. So so um, so for example, COVID. What that before COVID, pre-COVID, um, we were not allowed to have resident managed villages, resident managed staff. Like let, we weren't allowed to. It literally was in our permit. You will be shut down if a non-resident board member is not on site 24-7. Oh. So 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 I that meant I literally had to live at the village three days a week. Um and I couldn't even go to the grocery store or anything like that. It was wow. it was, it, it um was not allowed in our permit. Wow, um, and you're a hundred percent volunteer. I mean, yeah. this is another life that you have to live off and you were trying to help the community dealing with crisis issues, with homeless issues, with all the yeah. things that were escalating prior to 2017. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the, the so what happened when COVID hit was the the governor ordered everybody to stay at home. Um, and the city also put in their permit that no unnecessary but they they didn't change the part that said a board member had to be there 24 7 but they but they then they said because in order to prevent covid spread you will not let any unnecessary board members unnecessary volunteers unnecessary um uh people to come to the site at all in order to prevent covid spread so, so created a double bind yeah 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 so so i made so what we did was is so i knew that if i asked them they would have said no to change those terms to so what we did was we just we just did the what we thought was the most practical option we didn't let the city know we did rely on resident managers at, at the village to to be the supervision because supervision is required we understand that um and we, and um nothing happened nothing bad happened everything ran fine in fact it ran better they ran better when they were running their own village than when uh, we had random volunteers staying the night one day a week or two days a week running the village. Okay. Um, and so uh, that went on for about seven months until the city found out and they, they found out when they asked us, they said, do you still have board members staying the night there every night? And I said, no. And um, they, had, they, then they, they, they were, they seemed mad or upset about that. They said, well, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to uh, uh, decide over the weekend whether to shut you guys down or not, because it does say in the permit, if you don't have if, um, a non-resident board member on site, you will be shut down. So what I did at that point was I made the I made the legal argument that um, that the permit was unreasonable and that they needed to that we want to come into compliance, but we need the permit to be more reasonable to come into compliance with. And, but you uh, also made the argument that you were following the rules of COVID, which said, yeah, yes, yeah, 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 I'm getting to that. So okay. the, the the other argument I made was that one part of the permit was 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 violating the other part of the permit. So I made the argument that um, no board members were necessary and to 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 ensure the safety of the site, which is which was true. So none yeah. of the board members, including myself, 
was essential or necessary for the safe and stable operations of the site. Um, and so in order to prevent COVID spread, I did, was stopped um, coming down there and staying every night. No, I would visit and stuff to, to do basic duties and, and see how everybody was doing and stuff, but way less than I had been previously. Um, and um, so the city gave us a 90 day probationary period. They said, hey, we'll change the permit. Um, uh, and if there's anything goes wrong in 90 days, we'll rescind those changes. And then nothing went wrong in 90 days. Um, and so the, now we're allowed to have resident staff at, at both villages. And um, so that COVID, that was, a, that was a good thing that happened because of COVID. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the, but, and also COVID kind of made tiny homes more viable, but as far as uh, they're more naturally more self-quarantining because you had, you know, you had like various outbreaks and stuff at, at base camp, uh, which is the main homeless shelter in, in Bellingham. Um, we know a congregate shelter where, you know, everybody's in one room and that kind of thing. Um, and the, it's, it, it spreads a lot faster that way. Um, any kind of virus or getting sick, it spreads a lot faster that way. Um, we had a couple COVID cases at our villages, but it never spread, meaning like nobody spread COVID to anybody else because everybody could kind of quarantine inside their own unit if they got COVID. And so it really wasn't, and we, and, you know, we weren't, we, and we were kind of pro-choice on the masks and stuff. We weren't like really hardcore about it. Like a lot of people were at the time. Um, and it was still fine. Um, we had COVID tests though. So we could instantly test somebody to see if they had it or not, if they were sick. And if they were, we said, Hey, stay inside your tiny home and we'll get, you know, we'll designate one bathroom for people who have COVID or whatever and made sure that they just kind of stayed quarantined while they uh, recovered. And well, um, that actually helped people because what you were able to do is people knew that they were safe inside a, a, a self-quarantine space. Right. It had support. You were doing the things that were necessary to keep people safe. That's a huge benefit for people who the alternative was living unsafe in the streets you know, searching for everything, trying to get help, trying to figure out what was going on, and they're sick. Yeah, and and I, and that was a, a a lot of stuff shut down during COVID too. So like a lot of people that were getting some kind of help before even being able to like use use the bathroom from a business or something were no longer were not really able to during that time. So it was kind of a weird time, uh, but we got through it, and uh, and uh, you know we're. You know we're ready to do more i mean that i feel like it's like too slow like we're like we're you know because this the, this model can if you want to talk about economics this model can scale up really quickly because it relies on the people who are homeless who need the help to run it and um and all the heart it's, it's it's a little hard in the beginning because you gotta you gotta kind of set the tone um to, for for it for it to run that way but once it's running it keeps running that way and um and it has self-corrective mechanisms because it's a community um and the you, you can set up anywhere um and do do it again there's so many people out there that are homeless that need a place to stay and um and this is a really good stopgap measure to get people to out of survival mode while you, well I, I, who knows how many decades it's going to take for them to build enough housing so this is something that can be done quickly right now. Uh, so in other words, you moved while many people, when COVID happened and people got into lockdown shutdowns, you know, toilets were shut down, water was shut down, services yeah. were, people were abandoned and in total and complete distress. And mm -hmm. by being able to build a system that allowed people to take self-responsibility, have something to do, a place to stay safe, Mm -hmm. They were able to build their self-resilience -re factors up and yes. it became an asset instead of a liability that this thing happened. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. For sure. Okay. Let's take a break and we'll be right back with Doug Gustafson to talk about the next stage of learning as you've been building the, the tiny home villages. Mm. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find links to them and a list of our donors on our website at therestorativecommunity.org. You can also donate to support our direct services and our restorative community outreach and initiatives by clicking on the donate button. Welcome back to the call. 
Doug, let's talk about what happened next. So you got through, you built these villages, you found some some positive things that have come out. And what's the next learning curve? Because people were still dealing with, you've got the community that's dealing with trauma and shock from upheaval. You've got mm-hmm. government agencies that are d- dealing with trauma and shock from upheaval. You're dealing with the community that has gone into shutdown. A lot of businesses closed, and I'm imagining donations and the entire system that was operating there to support you was basically the rugs were pulled out from underneath you. How did that work? Uh, well, yeah, we we again we we are pretty self sufficient. I would say that we're about eighty percent self sufficient. It's it, it, not a hundred percent, so we still do rely on donations f- uh, from the general public. But um, we we can we can we can stretch it out a really long time if we need to, right? And um, and so during the COVID years, I would say the donations were not not that great. Um, and you know there was times where the whole bank account got down to like a thousand dollars or five hundred dollars in the bank account for fifty people, right? So um, it it it's uh, it was it, there was a it was there was a couple close calls there. This. This year has been better, so we're 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 not hurting as much this year financially. But yeah, it was it was it was a little tight there for a while. But again, um, we never took the big money, the the big government money for operations or anything. So we we can uh, we can maintain operations without it anything being shut down or whatever. But yeah, if we had like uh, purchases that we. Like if we wanted to build something, we would, we're like, okay, well, wait until we get a donation before we build um, more uh, awnings or, or the things that, that are like nice to have, but aren't like essential for the day to day. We had to kind of cut back on doing stuff like that. Um, But then when the money does come in, we, we do, uh, we do those construction jobs and stuff like that. And so you're talking about being a better manager, a better overseer, like a, a discretionary funding and planning. You're not codependent on, on a government that can then tear the, you know, when it's not funded, suddenly you're, you're, you're left hanging. I mean, you're, what you learn to do from an economic standpoint is to earn work plan schedule, discern what was the smartest and most useful thing. And so it defended, a, it depended, it created a certain amount of inter locking co-responsibility yeah right um so the well yeah we had we had to rely on each other and um and uh and again we we just made the we, we just made the best use of the resources we had available to us to maintain and not get and not um fall through the net right because if we if we were if we were not wise in how we spent our money or or whatever we, we would not be let's say we wouldn't be able to pay our electric bill and then the electricity gets shut off to the whole village or whatever you know that nothing like that has happened because we actually allocated our resources effectively but i would i'm just i just was making the point that during the covid years it got it, it got really down to the wire a little bit at times um, even though there was all this emergency funding for seemed like emergency funding for everything, uh, we didn't hit, we didn't get any of the, you know that kind of funding or anything like that. So um, yeah, it's an it's an interesting thing what happens with self sufficiency and discernment, responsibility, and accountability. When you're the one that's actually going to suffer the consequences, it changes perspectives a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. so moving forward into the the latest issues as we came through the COVID crisis, there's been a lot of money, like you said, a lot of federal money that came into the community, like hundreds of millions of dollars in our community Mm -hmm. over the last few years has flooded the community, which is actually in my observation, it's almost created a false gentrification, like a false flood of, of money but yeah, and, and what and what and what were the results of it? Like, where, where did it go? I don't know. Well, that's a good question, <laughs> but let's not go into that conversation yet. But yeah. my question is real because I mean that's a really good observation because the money came in from corporation to corporation. The taxpayers are still going to have to pay all that tax money back because th- those grants and that money came from the government, right? right? 
And who pays the government money? The taxpayers pay money into the government and then they give away these things. And then the government corporations get the money and they make deals with other government, other governments or other corporations. And then that money gets controlled inside a corporate, sort of a corporatocracy. And the little guy doesn't get the money in the same way. So, well, well, in that sense too, I've noticed that a lot of the money goes toward paid staff, right? So, yes, regardless of the agency, regardless of the government, regardless of anything, the 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 result seems to be that when all this money comes in, uh, they hire more staff, and, and that's expensive. And that's expensive, yeah, and and that's an expense that doesn't go away. It's a it's a it's not a one-time expense it's a ongoing regular expense and so the money that flooded in ha- is now you know going to be have to be your new normal budget because the this staff thing never goes has to go away so it it leads to it where it just costs keeps costing more each time this happens and it leads to paperwork and bureaucracy and reporting and planning and more paper shuffling instead of the money going where it's really needed. Yeah, so instead of the money going people. toward the walls and the roofs and the and the electric grid and the infrastructure that like makes people have places to live, like it doesn't go toward that. It goes toward what hiring somebody to to uh, do paperwork with you to tell you that they don't have a place for you or that you need counseling for um, a technical problem, you know, oh, you don't have, a, you, you don't, you know, because obviously people get depressed and, 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 uh, and burned out and, and, and everything like that when like, they don't have a place to live and they're, and it's going to take you three years to get into a place. So, you know, it seems like that's what a lot of the staff does. They just kind of work with you, work with somebody to kind of tell them, Hey, you there's not a lot of options for you. <laughs> Which seems actually contraindicated to solving the problem. Like we're spending the money on things that are not, in fact, uh, at the roots, helping people deal with it. And the, one of the best ways to deal with it is to help people get to work doing things that matter so they feel better. That's what oftentimes pulls people out of depression. At least that's what we've found at the Restorative Community Coalition putting people back in charge of their own life and giving them tools to help them do it and then give them a means to climb up out of the ladder is the best way to help people. Yeah. And, and I mean, I see it every day, you know, I, that's the part that kind of keeps me going on doing this is because you see somebody that they, you, you see them they they seem like they're not doing too good. Then they get into a place and then, um, and then it takes some time, but then you see that they build themselves up over the course of weeks and months and then and then um then you see how they're doing later and they um they move out and get into housing or they're still there but they're but they're getting they're getting a lot more stuff taken care of in their life and you can tell they're doing better and um and that that's you know that's good to see that's what i like to see so you know. you know, what's interesting, I would compare this to to physical accidents. When people get into a physical accident, mm-hmm. the shock of the collision shuts the body down. It's like it it shuts the whole system down and you go into shock. And that shock is actually an inflamed response to an unexpected thing. The shock, if you don't circulate the body, if you don't move the body, keep it warm, keep the circulation going... People can die from shock. They didn't actually get injured physically, like no actual organ maybe even got injured. But Mm. the shock of the impact causes this inflammation that Mm. shuts down circulation. And one of the best things you can do is keep the circulation going. And the same thing happens when you put a body into surgery. Like one of the things they used to do when you had a surgery, they keep you in for weeks or days. And now what they try to do is move people into the surgery, out of the surgery, and as fast as possible, get them into action and back into their lives so their body can compensate. Mm. In a way, that's what you're talking about here. Would you agree with that analogy, Doug? Yeah, yeah, um, that that makes sense. Uh, But instead of um, a physical trauma, it might be mental or... um, psychological so to speak and economic i mean we're talking a lot about economic trauma because that's what happened plus you had 
isolation, loss, abandonment, people losing their networks and their friendships. And that mm. leads to sadness and isolation. So building your homes now villages, in fact, help to mitigate many of those things just because of the reorganization of how you thought about it. Yeah, yeah. And and the and um, you know, it's it it is a community, right? Like not everybody no, it's not like everybody is like it is like friends with each other, but like but they but they they can that some are friends so some people make new friends and 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 it's like a it runs kind of like a family right but like um but it's it's about being able to work together being able to move forward and being able to tolerate each other and and uh, while you're all looking for ha housing and stuff and so yeah that that support it's it's a support network and it definitely has helped i've seen it help quite a few people so so it's like a loose connections, many loose connections start mm -hmm. to fill in the gaps of of hurt. And then people learn how to become more resourceful. They learn how to deal with conflict. They yeah, and work, yeah, and work with others. And, and you know, that, that's what they're going to have to do when they're out and they got their apartment or they get a house somewhere. They're going to have to work with others and, and, and in the community who are totally different from them and, and get along and, and um, make progress on stuff. So... I feel like it's a good environment for doing that. It would be, it would, and, and you know, our results are, they can speak, our results speak for themselves. Um, with, you know, if we had more resources too, we could do even more than what we can do now. But so talk about that. Talk about the need and how you could actually multiply this project out with a little, like, what does it take to actually launch and then duplicate and duplicate and duplicate? People, well, could you conceivably imagine serving in a community before you hmm. rev rev out or you know max out or? Yeah, yeah. Well, what it takes usually is is you need a spot to do it on. That's the that's the that's issue number one. Okay, that's land. You that's land. That's land. Space. Yeah. And 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 we can set up on land that's not stand you know not suitable for standard development or won't be developed for quite some time, right? You know, like we can as long as there's you know power enough power um as long as there's um water we don't even need sewer uh because we can do um porta bodies or or a, a gray water trailer to empty our gray water it's it's not as convenient but it's not a deal breaker right um but you just need like the basic infrastructure you, and you don't even have to have all the money up front to build all the tiny homes and stuff you could even build them gradually you could say hey we got the land now now we need we it's going to cost us this much to get the first five going is does it you do a you do a fundraiser to do the first five and then once people see that five are being built they want to build 10 and and whatever uh, the, the community always comes out when there's new construction or things like that going on and and it's it's a positive thing yeah people want to help it, it, yeah they do and and then also too um the, I would say that the that the hardest part is when you first open it because that's what I would call setting the tone. Because if you set the tone right, and this is this is something we learned a lot when we set up our second village, right? Um, is is um, you you got it, like you you got to set the tone early in the beginning for people to like get in the groove of how this is going to work as far as like, okay, here's our, here's the chores we have to do. Here's the routines that we have to do to keep the place clean and, and stuff like that. Um, cause well, once it's, cause yeah. once it gets set a certain way, it's, it's, it's a lot more difficult to change it, change it later than it is to set it right the first time. And the, the, um, the, also, too, one thing that we've had as kind of a disadvantage at uh, all of the villages we've set up so far, but we made it work, is a lot of times it ends up being, okay, let's take 25 people all at once and open the village now. Um, and, you know, it it, it, it it would likely be better if you, people did move in gradually, like if you set up a new one and had five people move in and then maybe another five and then w whatever. Um so, so a groove could be formed. But again, we started under emergency conditions. So our second village was like, we went from nothing to a fully functioning village in two weeks. And how many people? 25. See, that's, so what you're talking about, what I just heard you say, and I want to reflect back and see if this is true. 
Hmm. It's about when you when you're talking about setting up the groove and getting the conditioning there, you're talking about building trust. You're talking about having certain practices and paradigms and belief systems clear so that people understand yeah. how to do relationship in distress and how to build tr trust over time amongst the people. Because once you set up a pattern, people like to follow patterns. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what you do. Once you, what you learn, you know, us as children, we learn to follow our, our teachers and our parents and our preachers or whoever it is. And we get into a groove. So you set the groove that has to do with how do you do it? And then you set routines and then you set your chores and your practices. So if you have a scope of work that this is the beginning and mm -hmm. here's the steps going through it, it could be duplicatable just like any kind of a, a franchise. It's just yeah. a community, non-local, uh, non-paid by government cooperative mm -hmm. that helps build a new safety net for people who don't have a lot of resource, a lot of financial resources, even though emotionally and mentally they have some, but they've been traumatized. Yeah. So in any case though, um, yeah, it's it, but it is an easily replicatable model. We can replicate it and it can grow as much as it needs to. Sure. Um, and again, if there was housing for everybody, we wouldn't even need to exist either, but, um, that, but, <laughs> but, there that, but that's, but there isn't, it just seems to be getting worse. So the, I mean, this is something that can be, um, set up relatively quickly anywhere. And, and, and the key is that it relies on the people who need the place to live, to, to do everything and to run the place while they're looking for housing. Um, and, but, but, I, but as I was saying about setting the groove and, yeah. and what I, when we set up our second village, I was a little, I would say I was a little too um, hands-off in the beginning. Um, I, you can, I can be hands-off now and everything's fine. But in the beginning is where it's the most important to just to say, okay, here's the standards. Here's how it works. Here's what we need to do. Here's responsible behavior for keeping things safe here. Here's and kind of literally spelling it out a, a little more emphasized than just we'll figure it out. Um, and, and so, you know, if we were to set up a third village, uh, it would, it would be, it would be, um, and we've gotten to a good place at both villages, but it would be even faster and smoother if we did a third one because we've learned a lot along the way. Of, so you're uh, talking about retraining, reorienting, reorganizing, re reprogramming everything in a way with a whole new set of people who are all volunteers. That's yeah, that's yeah, yeah. and also too, there's there's room for change. This isn't like a cookie cutter model because both of our villages have different people, and part of what and part of how our model works is it, it's, it has a democratic approach. So how are these how are decisions made for the village? Well, sure. the, the, when a major decision has to be made, the village gets together. We have a meeting or a discussion back and forth over how we think something should be approached. Um, and then we vote on it. And so, uh, so both villages have come up with, um, different policies, different rules, um, as far as how they want to do certain things. And that was, that was democratically voted on and decided. And so, you know, they're, they're very similar, but there, but there are differences because of, because of, um, the different people who happen to be living there. And, and again, when new people live there and old people move out, it, it changes every time. So every time a new person comes in and an old person leaves, um, the, the whole vibe of the place changes a little bit. And um, so it's just interesting to see the evolution of that over time at both villages. So Awesome. So so during this call so far, we've talked about the self-sufficiency and the learning of how to be self-sufficient. We've talked about the evolution into resourcefulness and adaptability. Let's take a break and we'll be right back with Doug, Doug Gustafson with Homes Now, Not Later. And we're going to talk about what happened then with the government systems and you know, during this same multi multi-year period, as you were adapting, the humans were adapting. Now you're in a new phase. What's happening now? We'll be right back with Doug Gustafson. If you are a business owner or professional who wishes to sponsor our restorative community coalition, give a legacy gift to the Restore Life Center project or support our fundraising events, feel free to contact us at sponsors at the restorative 
Welcome back, Doug, with Homes Now, Not Later out of Bellingham, Washington. Let's talk about what happen- what's happening now, because we're going through another transition. Mm-hmm. A bunch of money flooded the community. Many people did go after a bunch of that money, but a lot of that money didn't necessarily fit. And the habit pattern of governments and bureaucracies is to go back into a safety net and think that papers and checklists and things are what keep them safe when in fact, as you've just demonstrated, it's the self-sufficiency, it's the the building of humans as being um, self-responsible and self-capable. What's happening now with you and specifically, let's talk about government issues and what the learning curve has been at government levels with you. Okay. Yeah. So, so what I what has kind of happened over the last few years, and and it and it kind of ramped up more after COVID was over. Um, but we're Homes Now has been around for a while, a little while now, and so now I feel like we're being treated like um, like all the other agencies that take a lot of money and and have that have all the you know red tape and strings attached associated with that, but we haven't been so so we we, we so, 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 so now yeah so now so now there's a lot more stuff that we have to do that we didn't used to have to do like um we have to use hmis now which is the state homeless management information system it's the state's database for tracking you know when somebody left or came into the village and statistics and you gotta you gotta gather all the all the data points about them there's their income, their social security, their, their, um, their medical stuff, like stuff that we're kind of focused on the housing part and the shelter part. And that, and that's what we do, but now we're having to get into all this other stuff and it's, and it, yeah, it does take up time. It it does, it, you know, I, I do all the paperwork for that stuff because in order to even like input data into the state database you have to go through some really long training uh it was really annoying and long and um boring um and there and and so i can't even just i can't even just offload it to somebody else i can't just say oh yeah like i'll have so-and-so wants to do paperwork okay here you go here's how here's my login go ahead and you no, i can't i they have to go through the whole training too so it just leads to like okay, I guess I'll just do it because it's quicker that way. But then what happens if we end up getting more villages? I'll be having to enter in paperwork for for hundreds of people um, every time somebody leaves or comes in and their demographics and everything like that. Now, we keep our own statistics too, but it's a little bit different than, it's a little more lightweight than the state's database system having to work in a certain way. And and so it's almost like uh, reporting systems that are technically required by an administration that is technically some would say it's the cya thing the cover your ass kind of story Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily relevant to the end result that you're trying to get it's like an after the fact reporting of what they think happened relative to all these things relative to an infrastructure that you're not even a part of Right and the really? and the right and the problem I, the, the 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 issue I have with it isn't that I have to use the, the system or whatever, it's that that will be used as metrics for success or not. And the problem is like because we we're not very like strict about who we give a chance at our villages. Okay, like we do we do screen out people if they have like sex offender status or if they are, are if they have serious stuff like assaults and stuff on their record that are recent and uh, oh assault with a deadly weapon uh, i think well we don't want to take that risk um but we're, for the most part we're pretty we're pretty open of who we give a chance right and so well part of that's because you've got lived experience working with people in real situations so you have a beat mm-hmm. on understanding who people are that's different than what certain metrics might show over here you're just measuring people according to a scoreboard well yeah but also the problem though is that is that um so like let's so like let's say we give somebody a chance and and it doesn't work out after uh two days okay so so somebody cut we we give somebody a chance they turn out to have like you know some severe issues after two days and we're like okay it's not going to work um we'll see you later uh 
that shows as a housing failure. Like, so that shows as they entered your program and they exited to the street or a shelter. Therefore that, that gets marked down as a failure point. But then if somebody is in there for six months and then they find housing, that's marking, that's marked as a success. Right. Right. But the, but the, but the problem is, is like, if, if you're going to use those metrics to determine effectiveness of a program, then you, then, then you just think you got to start. So we either have to say, okay, well, our success rate is 50, 58%. But the way we, we, the way we calculate that 58% is that we say we give people a two week trial run and then the numbers get counted after the two weeks. So, so, so uh, if something doesn't work out after a couple days or something, we, we, we just, it just doesn't count. Um, but the pro, but if if we if we're using this database system, you actually have to put in when like the exact day they moved in and the exact day they moved out. So if we don't want our success rate to show up like it's twenty percent or something, we actually might have to we might have to be more picky on who we give a shot because we don't want a, a non-success to show up so quickly and and tainting the statistics overall because again they're just going to look at it from an administrative bureaucracy standpoint and they're and they're going to go well the, it looks like it's not that effective and and it's it's because you give somebody a chance and they might be higher risk and then it doesn't work out after a couple of days and then that shows as a failure of your program when so really you were just giving somebody a shot and and it, it jeopardizes your statistics if you give somebody a shot and they're a little higher risk and, and so in other and words, I, it's a it's a way when people talk about humanizing systems, you're yeah. actually talking about being realistic with humans and working with the variables of humanity yeah. as opposed to working with dehumanized statistical numbers, points on a Gantt chart that are tracking stats, but they're not tracking humans or human development. And there's right. there's a mismatch between those two things. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So the it, I could see it being used as a as a tool or a weapon, so to speak, uh, to say, well, you know, you 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 said that you you said that your statistics were fifty eight percent, and and when we look at the HMIS data, it actually looks more like twenty two percent. So where's the discrepancy there? And it's a, and the discrepancy is stuff like, hey, we hey we give them a two week trial run, and then it, the the statistics begin if it is working out for them there. And, and later, if that doesn't work out like three months late, they might be fine there for three months and then it didn't work out. We count that as a failure. So we count that as a, that they exited unsuccessfully. We do count those numbers, but if it's like within a couple of days of, of giving somebody a shot, I, we, we kind of don't feel right. Like having to report that as a failure on our part, you know? Sure. So, but it, again, like it's just a, it's a small gripe, but the, you know, these metrics and stuff are used to determine whether or not the city will say, hey, you know what, that, that we're going to keep going with this program or not. So I, I am very aware of how the information statistics can be, you know, looked at in many different ways. And it, it can it can reflect it can it can actually de determine whether or not your program continues or not. Well, and people when you're working with a volunteer agency and you're working with people who are donating their time. Mm -hmm. And they're donating their their efforts and trying to measure the same system against somebody who is paid to show up, perfectly trained, all this stuff to work within a system that is a, mm -hmm. a fixed system. You're not comparing apples to apples. And yet, because it's easier for people to get used to somebody doing the job. They, it's it's understandable why the government agencies and the systems that are tracking stats begin to believe that somebody, because you do a good job, therefore you need to be measured by the same instrument. But in mm -hmm. fact, one is a paid staff, one is not a paid staff, and there mm -hmm. are differences, and this creates conflict in public perception and in money that's yeah. exchanged, et cetera. Yeah, and then also when it comes to the paid staff thing, I mean, we if I mean, I I believe our our success rate is higher than the third village um because there is a third village in Bellingham managed by low income housing institute and um that that model is different. They they do go for the full paid staff um situation. 
Um, I do believe we have higher success rate than they do, um, even using the same metrics. Um, the, but the the thing with the paid staff thing is it, it can only scale up as far as, I mean, because that village costs like more than a million dollars a year to operate, like an operations costs of staff members. Um, wow. uh, and our villages are about $30,000 a year to operate uh, because the, the residents are the staff. Um, and and so if you are just happen to be like if you're homeless and you happen to be living at a place and you have a part in in making that place operate the way that it does for the better, you you get um that that to me is a more effective model than having a situation where you're just living there and you're not having any part in actually building the place up or keeping it running, but you you have to defer to some other part-time staff member that does all that all the time it, it it what i'm saying is like i think that the effectiveness of our model relies on the fact that you are the one who needs the place and you you're building it up with others um and you're invested in it um and you, you take ownership in it you know well it's an interesting it's an interesting question that at some point we need to look at because realistically when when you're investing in real estate as an investor mm-hmm. okay and i'm looking at myself as a taxpayer investing in my community i give money to the tax to the tax dollars to the government to manage emergency and housing and all these things and most of us don't think of ourselves as deserving a fiscal analysis report or a cash flow report or a long-term return on investment most people just look at short-term you know cash flow what's the cost etc they don't look at the internal rate of return to the taxpayer over time Mm, yeah some sometime it would be useful to actually look at you know you have a village that's got 25 people in it it cost x amount of dollars over this period of time to put money into it you've got this many people coming out and you've got this kind of a success rate so mm-hmm. this is your actual cash value. And what is the future value of people who succeed out of the system, get a job, go to work, they're better humans. Mm-hmm. What's the long range return on investment? And then run it against, I mean, it sounds like if it's a million dollars and you're hiring staff and you're doing it for them, there's a certain return on investment in the short term mm-hmm. and in the long term. And me, the taxpayer is paying the tax bill. Well, yeah, and if and if you're trying to scale that up, you're trying to scale a model up like that. And I'm not blasting them either. I I think that right, there, I, there, I think that there is a place for a, um, a, a model that's a little more institutionalized, so to Absolutely. speak, for certain individuals. Like, let's say they have a lot of like hardcore medical needs, and they need like a, a caregiver, or um, or maybe there's there or maybe they're they're um, exiting prison or something, and they might need a little bit more of a controlled environment because they might be high risk. Yeah. Um, or or other other scenarios like that. But when you're trying to scale up a model like that, you, you if you're building two villages, now you're talking two million. It, it, it's it, three villages, three million. Um, so whereas with whereas with us, you're you're th- you're only going to have that one time fixed cost of building all the structures, putting in the infrastructure. And then maintenance costs uh, and and just basic supply costs and and that that does not exponentially increase right so um, it 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 is it, so uh, but but operations costs do exponentially increase if you the more that you do them so that that's what I mean about the economics sure. of it and scale, how how we can scale up quickly it's not only for the benefit of the people living there being more self-sufficient and everything like that. It's economically viable that you can set up a lot of these in a lot of places with good results. Um, Awesome. Thank you, Doug. You've got about a minute or two here left to give us a summary. What have we not covered that you wanted to cover in this conference conversation for people? Well, well, one thing we haven't covered is that pretty soon early, what's going to happen in, in, early 2024 is that the city has let us know that that both villages are have to be moved and they are moving us to the same spot so oh so you're gonna have 50 people in the same space yeah yeah that gonna um, work 
Um, well, we, we could make it work. Um, but, but yeah, it's gonna, I think it's gonna be, a ch- you know, it's gonna be a challenge. It's gonna be different. It's gonna be a challenge because you're, you have two villages, two different identities, um, two different ways of doing things now having to work together as, um, it, we're going to go with a hybrid approach. So what I, what, what I mean by hybrid approach is you keep the two separate villages, but there are shared responsibilities like front desks. So we don't want to have two separate front desks at the same place. You know what I'm saying? Stuff like that. So there will be one front desk. The layout is going to be that you walk into a courtyard slash garden and then one side of the garden, you walk into Unity Village. The other side of the garden, you walk into Swift Haven. Um, and uh, then shared areas for like our like our shipping containers that, that have like our donations in them and, and supplies and stuff will be shared in the middle. But um, but but um, the actual like and there might be meetings like once a month where both villages meet at, in one meeting and then and then the rest of the meetings are just each separate village, right? So kind of like pods, so to speak. Um, and so that's kind of how we're planning to do it. I'm, I'm sure a lot of stuff's gonna change along the way, but we're that, that's that's our rough idea of what, how we're gonna handle it. We I, we prefer not to have to, I prefer more like having 20 sites of 25, like all throughout the city, 25, 25, 25, 25, 25, 25. Um, but we're we're gonna have to figure out how to do 50 and it's gonna be different but i think we can figure it out and the last thing the last and sorry don't mean to ramble too much here but the last thing i also wanted to say is that the end game for like who's going to be managing homes homes now in the future and all that is we plan to have it be managed mostly by people who who were homeless and have now found housing and are housed and so um we we want you know a peers helping peers model like people you're an if you've been homeless you're an expert on homelessness so yeah. you've lived it, right and so uh that that is kind of the long term because i don't plan to be kind of doing the solo thing as chairman forever right so <laughs> the, 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 uh that, that's kind of the end game of where we're going for and i i i have no doubt we'll be able to achieve it so How awesome. Thank you so much, Doug. You have been a real inspiration to many people in the community and you've established a model that's doable, workable, scalable, and productive. So thank you so much. Thank you listeners for being here and check out Doug Gustafson's projects, homesnownotlater.org. Is that it? Homesnow.org. I'm surprised that domain name wasn't taken, (laughs) homesnow.org. homesnow.org. Congratulations, Doug. You were, well, you were an early adopter of a new idea and you've pioneered it. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At the restorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.